I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey guys, this is Dr. Santosh, pediatric infectious disease doc, researcher, you know it. General man about town. Which town? Who knows? <laughs> Los Angeles? <laughs> yeah. The cradle of civilization. <laughs> For Hollywood, I guess? I, I, I suppose so. I, I would call this like the, um, not the cradle, but like the, uh, it, it's like the resort, the, the, the resort pen? town. The, the playpen play of, of civilization. Yeah. The ball like you don't, Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, like that's after, actually more West Hollywood. Yeah. Yeah. Like after, after you grow up in the cradle for a little bit, like you just want to play around a little, like you want to explore and mess around, but you know, it's not forever. <laughs> Los Angeles, but, yeah. the McDonald's play place of civilization. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, no, no. I, I was thinking about, cradles of civilization and old epics and things and i figured we haven't done we haven't done a historical episode in a while i mean not not in 80 plagues but, but <laughs> an actual okay. like real deep dive into into some historical ancient medicine yeah, yeah absolutely your your some of your favorite topics about how people did stuff in ye old days yeah, and then I have been, and I'll tell you, I've got a secret. Don't tell anyone, just you, me, and however many listeners we're up to now. <laughs> yeah, okay. I might have just secured an interview with a paleopathologist for a future <gasps> episode. Oh! But if you're oh not sure gosh. what a paleopathologist if you're not sure what a paleopathologist is, stay tuned, because uh, <laughs> one will be coming up. But not today. Guys, 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 I just, this it's a good time to remind you that if you... um 
if you go ahead and subscribe, you know, it'll just, it'll just show up in your queue and, you know, just be ready for you when we give you that juicy goodness. Why is gossip always juicy? Like, have you ever actually, (laughs) you know what? No, we're not getting into it. We already, (laughs) anyway, let's, let's go wander over, grab the keys to the Wayback Machine and... Wait, are you driving or am I driving? I'm a little tired. You can take the keys. If you could just steer us back to around, oh, I don't know, a thousand. Egypt? Let's talk about someplace other than Egypt, just (gasps) for the novelty. Shush. Sacrilege. Really? You know, Santosh, because both of us tonight are such a mess, I figured Uh we go onward to Mesopotamia. Oh, that's beautiful. (laughs) All the way back. Okay, so we're going before Egypt's big pyramids rose and before Babylon and the Hanging Gardens, like way, way, way back, huh? That's the very reason why the Wayback Machine is titled as such. (laughs) Because we're going to take it over a thousand years before the life and teachings of Hippocrates. Oh, okay. Prior okay. to the description and treatment of wounds in the Iliad. Okay, okay. Contemporary, close to mm-hmm. close to Egypt with the Edwin Smith and Eberus Papyrus. But we're going to okay. talk today about medicine in pre-1000 BCE Mesopotamia, which was a pretty oh. well-established profession. Uh, so we were in, like, this was one of the great cradles of civilization where the first a lot of firsts over here right like first uh i think maybe agriculture and people getting together and and actually forming towns and cities right so we are i guess a little contemporary with some of the kingdoms of egypt but we're just moved over a little bit yeah, yeah, we're talking okay. about the era of the epic poem of Gilgamesh and Enkidu and, and what oh, kind of medicine yeah. was going on with, you know, at that time. Yeah, okay, okay, all right. So in order to talk about medicine in Mesopotamia, we're obviously going to have to talk about religion and gods in Mesopotamia. Yes. Because, because you know, there's... medicine was the divi- was the divinity, was the territory of the priests, kind of. Yeah, this is where these kind of professions or the idea of the spiritual and the flesh in terms of how they interacted for uh, health kind of reasons, it, it wasn't separated out, right? And so any civilization that we talk about around this era is going to have like either a patron God or someone that you would call to, to aid you while you were healing a combination of, you know, your herbs and spices and all that stuff. But you know, you're, you're pleased to the your 11 well. secrets. Yeah. Your 11 <laughs> exactly. secrets. Colonel Gilgamesh. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't it be awesome if Kentucky fried chicken, like they had their medical school and healers, but they also had prayers to the Colonel. We'll start with a couple a couple of gods. Okay. The goddess Gula, who was also mm-hmm. known by names such as Ninkarak, Ninsina, presided over health and healing. And she was aided by her consort, Pabilsag, who was also a divine judge, her okay. sons Damu and Ninazu, and her okay. daughter Ganura. 
those are all the names you're really going to need to yeah. know. We'll we'll go through them. You know how I usually correct you a ton, Josh, but right now, I think everybody who would be able to actually give us the real pronunciation is like long dead. So oh, I can't. Oh, did I pick a language that's long dead <laughs> along with its civilization, so no one could uh, blame my pronunciations this week? What a coincidence! <laughs> yeah, you enjoy yourself, why don't you? I will enjoy myself. <laughs> All right, cool. So. Gula was the primary deity of healing and health, uh, was referred to in clay tablets as the great physician of the black-headed ones, meaning Sumerians, okay. uh, compared to presumably other river Euphrates civilization. I don't know what people look okay. like back then. Uh, sure, but sure. interestingly, the rod intertwined with serpents that we associate with Greece the caduceus or the staff of which is two serpents or the staff of asclepius one serpent but snakes in the medical profession we've talked about this a couple times usually if someone comes running at you with a snake on a stick you don't think oh good there's the doctor (laughs) that's true we talked about how it may have actually been a symbol of pulling worms out of you and winding them around a stick but In Mesopotamia, that originated, or the idea of a snake on a staff in healing, originated not with Gula, but with her son, Ninazu, who was associated with serpents, the underworld, and healing. So what does snakes have to do with healing? The serpent symbolized regeneration and transformation because it sheds its skin. Okay, I see. So we have some of these associations, such as rabbits with fertility, because of the number of pups and everything that they have, you know, in the springtime and all that, and they have a a cycle. So this is the same type of symbolic connection that we have uh, over here is that like every now and again, the snake looks like new. And it leaves behind all the old cracked skin, the things you could presumably, it's, it's only a short hop, skip and mythological jump to say, if something was infected or diseased, it can leave those behind and crawl out fresh and new and transformed. Are you so, saying that you can snake if you want to? You can leave your skin behind? And if your friends don't my snake, friends all if they don't it. snake, <laughs> then they're, they're no friends, friends of mine. Of mine. <laughs> exactly mess, right. Mess, yeah. mess. Oh, 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 oh. Po, to, to, to. Hey, me. Uh, anyway, oh, Nina Zoo. The snakey dance, a, yeah. Guys, you can look for that coming up on our uh, upcoming album. We really should make a Med Songs album. Nina Zhu was associated with the serpent because he helped people pass over to the afterlife and enabled them to recover from what ailed them. So now that we've kind of mm-hmm. got Gula, her son, doctors in Mesopotamia were simply the agents through which these deities worked in order to maintain the health of people of Mesopotamia. And if you thought physicians today had a God complex. (laughs) This is one of those where, you you know, we hear it every now and again. It's like, oh, it wasn't me. I just opened up my heart and let the Lord work through my hands. (laughs) Yeah, bullshit. (laughs) literal job description because illness back in these (laughs) times was often referred to as the hand of as in the patient is touched by the hand of the god shamash or the hand of the demon lamashtu is upon her or the hand of this or that unhappy ghost diagnosis always referenced the will of the gods and their intervention in human affairs therefore illness equaled sin 
and a cure for that illness required some form of confession of that sin, an acknowledgement that one had done wrong, an affirmation to do right in the future, and a few, you know, secret herbs and spices. <laughs> uh, okay, so very, very common themes that we hear about as uh, your health being linked to some sort of evil and your recovery to absolution. Got it. Now, we did find ancient inscriptions found at Nineveh and Mari, but prior to that, the only information we really had about this civilization, or at least their medical treatment, came from the Greeks who you know, we're engaging in a little bit of one-upmanship or condescension. So scholars used to believe that Mesopotamia had no doctors or health care at all, which for a civilization of that size at the time would have been highly unlikely. But here is Herodotus, well-known Greek historian, who writes about health care in Mesopotamia. Disclaimer, this is not true, but this is what <laughs> he thought. They bring sure. out all their sick into the streets, for they have no regular doctors. People that come along oh. offer the sick man advice, either from what they personally have found to cure a complaint, or what they have known someone else to be cured by. No one is allowed to pass by a sick person without asking him what ails him. Got, uh, okay, so this is basically Herodotus over here was kind of theorizing. Uh, about yeah, Herodotus is saying on. like, Oh, I went, you know, I've heard that in Mesopotamia, they just dump the sick out <laughs> in the streets. And you have, you know, if you see a sick person, you have to say what's wrong with you. And then Wikipedia them your own cure. Well, my grandma <laughs> says Mesopotamian sure. ball soup will cure that, you know, whatever. Right. But he was he was just basically talking out of his whatever he wasn't he wasn't drawing off of any kind of historical data or archives or anything like that he was just going like you know what i bet you it was like this well he was basically doing the trip advisor version he was getting second <laughs> okay. third fourth hand information and setting it down so he was trying to keep a historical record but he wasn't checking his sources i understand i understand so once he had some kind of like preliminary information he didn't bother to verify or anything like that. Correct. It's like, well, it. good enough for me. <laughs> okay. He was he was basically ancient Facebook. Oh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we all know how that re how reliable that is. Yes. But here's the thing. Most of Mesopotamians records were on clay tablets, and clay tablets, especially those that have been baked in fires, are far more durable than paper, papyrus, and things like that. So we actually have more original source material regarding medicine from Mesopotamia than from Greece, Rome, or Egypt. Oh, so cool. That makes a ton of sense. So you know, for instance, if there was a fire, we, you know, we think about the horrible, you know, the Library of Alexandria, and you have papyrus there and hide and paper. Of course, it's all going to go up in flame, but it's going to be resistant to fire. It's going to be dried out, so it's going to be resistant to water, so ink won't run. And so even if you break it apart, you just piece it back together, right? And you can still read it. That's so, yeah. so cool. Dude, let's switch over to like clay tablets forever. I mean, iPads, just not clay. <laughs> Josh, I want to, uh, I actually want to see a beautiful film of you sitting out like at a Starbucks with your iPad 
but instead of typing on it, like you're smashing it with a hammer and a chisel. <laughs> I've lost more iPads that way. <laughs> what are you doing, sir? Minding my own business. Clang, clang, clang. <laughs> so almost every time I've referenced ancient Egypt and medicine, I'm usually talking about one of two or three medical papyri which have survived. But right. the surviving Mesopotamian medical records consist of around a thousand tablets. However, they're wow. all written in cuneiform. However, they're all written in cuneiform, which is um, even more complicated than hieroglyphics. And I don't think <laughs> understood. I, I mean, I you, we haven't talked to any archaeologists lately, but over a thousand cuneiform tablets of wow. about six hundred and sixty of them from the library of Ashurbanipal are preserved in the British Museum. They're all there. They're just waiting for us to figure out what they say and how to read it. Yeah. And Whoa. these come from the famous library of Ashurbanipal at Nineveh, which dates back to 668 BC. Mm-hmm. The, okay. treatise, the treatise of medical diagnosis and prognosis is one of the largest and oldest, and it took 40 tablets uh collectively that's how long this treatise is 40 tablets so i don't have any real scale of like how big the tablets are and how small the writing is on each one um i'm i'm presuming that's a lot of think of a very thick ipad and just google image search cuneiform heck google image search mesopotamian cuneiform tablets I'm going to do that as we continue to talk. Most of these tablets weren't discovered until the 19th century, whereas we've had access to the Egyptian papyri since well into the Victorian era. And because of a lot of the difficulties with translating cuneiform script, many of these tablets still aren't understood by scholars. Most of them that did survive did so not because the manuscripts were copied and the knowledge was passed down, but just because the tablet accidentally got buried somewhere. Like you lost it under the equivalent of a Mesopotamian or Sumerian couch. <laughs> like you're walking around with a big ass <laughs> rock and you're like, dude, where'd you put my rock? <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. So just to be fair, as I'm Googling with you, I guess these are quite variable. So you have everything from, uh, uh, I was being a little facetious, but you do have things that are as large as, like you were saying, you know, from a, like a modern day cell phone size to a tablet, um, but all the way down to like very small tablets as well, huh, Josh? So things that you could hold like just in between your index finger and your thumb. Uh, like I was thinking that, you know, like, oh, Grog lose rock, like a fucking 60 pound boulder went over there. But honestly, some of these were small enough to just fit in the palm of your hand. So if it looks like every other rock and you don't look closely to say that, oh, is there writing on it? You just, you know, it'd be just lie down by the side of the road and that would be it. Yeah, also Groglu's Rock, Groglu's important medical treatise in the cradle, <laughs> you know, in, in a developing civilization. So let's sure. let's give them a little bit of credit. We're we're not quite dealing with cave people here. No, no, um, no. These are this this was a fairly advanced civilization, agriculture cities, and uh, amazing writing system that we still have to rediscover. 
from what has been translated, it's this diagnostic treatise is organized from head to toe with separate subsections covering seizure disorders, gynecology, huh? and even pediatrics. Yay! Uh, a lot of the translations at present, and I'll see if I can find a couple good ones for you later, make these medical texts sound like ex- excerpts from a sorcerer's handbook. <laughs> I'm sure they would. I'm still wondering if, you know, so we're talking about like 1000 BCE? Yeah, like somewhere between 1000 yeah. and 660 BCE. Oh, yeah. this, this knowledge was formed around 1000 because it was already in the library around 600. Oh, sure. So I'm I'm wondering if like to, you know, human civilization 3000 years from now that like if they find our weird, you know, jump drives and stuff, they'll be like, dude, do you know these people like had specific instructions on how to like scrub their hands? Like they it had to be 24 times. Like what's up with 24? <laughs> Why were so many people singing happy birthday to wash their hands? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> they keep saying you have to sing happy birthday twice while washing your hands. What do you think that means? And they used to chant a prayer while attempting to resuscitate. Oh, 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 staying alive. Staying alive. Staying alive. Staying alive. <laughs> <laughs> that, I think it would be so awesome to have that. It, uh, just, you know, we may have here like prayers to gods and stuff while they had to perform a ritual or grind up the herbs or anything like that. I'm wondering if there was something like that, though, Josh, that they were basically like keeping time or something like that. That'd be really interesting to find Gil, out. We'll get to the spells and the priests and things, but let's talk about the actual professionals. As yeah. far as has been translated, there were two primary kinds of doctors throughout Mesopotamia's history. Sorry, sorry. Uh, I just want to reiterate, this is now what we have revealed from actual, like, everything that we can find from historical data, not just Facebooking it the way that Herodotus did. Correct. Got it. Okay. So so this this is the good stuff. Okay. Yeah. So healer, this is, you know, a theocratic culture. So healers were very closely integrated with the priests, and there were essentially two kinds of doctors but three kinds of healers there were baru okay. there were baru or seers who were experts in divination and diagnosis okay. there were ashipu healers who relied upon one healers who relied upon basically magic and prayers known as exorcists and oh, oh, okay. healing okay. and healing priests known as asu who treated illness or injury more empirically or scientifically Uh, So what's the difference? An Asu would treat a wound by washing, bandaging, creating a plaster with medical and herbal ingredients. They were trained in schools associated with temples of Gula, the goddess of medicine and healing, and educated using these clay tablet textbooks. They had to go on the equivalent of rounds and to develop practical experience. Okay, Uh, Okay, so these empiricists... Yeah, so they focused okay. on patients' account of their illnesses and physical examination. So we still know illness is sin, but they would say, what kind of sin? How is this sin being represented so we know what to give you while you're off saying your hail Enkidus or gotcha. Gulas or whatever? <laughs> I'm really going to keep falling back on the same two names because that's what I remember from undergrad. So deal yeah, with yeah. it. Yeah, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I... Like we said, uh, anybody who can raise any objections is long since dead. 
That's right. No witness medicine, our favorite kind. <laughs> the other kind of doctor, the exorcists, the Asipu. Asipus okay. were healers who had to determine which god or demon was causing the illness and whether the illness was the result of some error or sin of the patient. Okay. So they would offer spells and charms so they'd have to identify the offending supernatural power, figure out what kind of appeasement that particular god liked, amulets, incantations, sacrifices, exorcisms. So there was still a measure of empirical therapy. So they'd say, oh, you're having this. This is a recognized symptom complex. We know that everyone who starts urinating blood and having pain in the flank has angered the water god. Uh, whereas, you know, someone else might say, oh, you're urinating blood, you've angered the water god, but we know that the water god likes when you get this spell with these reeds and these herbs. So you'd have Got to it. kind of see the two in tandem. Okay, okay. so uh, not, I, I was thinking maybe you'd tell us something like medical and surgical or something like that, but it looks like here in terms of diagnostics and therapeutics, there was a quite a bit of like overlap between the two. Um, they, they kind of came from different schools of thought, but they were both aiming for the same kind of thing. Almost, ultimately. almost. And, Oh, there's no way to say this without offending somebody, but okay. the division was less medical surgical and more allopathic osteopathic. So MDs, DOs, where one is practicing empirical medicine and the other, a bunch of hocus pocus. So <laughs> he's an angry God. I'll let you figure out who's who. <laughs> All right. Send all of your angry email to. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, interestingly, pharmacists, such as they were, almost all medicines in Mesopotamia were largely made by women dealing with herbs okay. and things like that. Oh, interesting. A, okay. A cuneiform tablet from Sumeria around 3000 BC. Oh, way, way details, back. Details 15 different pharmaceutical prescriptions, although it doesn't give context that would give the names of the diseases or the amounts of the ingredients. They just say, you know, here's the things that you mix together. But it doesn't say what you're mixing them together for or how much of them you're mixing. <laughs> okay. Uh, so this this seems like it was a tablet to be used kind of by an expert, meaning that they have it, they wrote down all the recipes, but you'd have to have some knowledge already for the function or the use of these. Right. So things included would be so in this recipe, you'd have stuff like sodium chloride, you know, table salt, uh, okay. potassium nitrate, known as okay. saltpeter, okay. milk, yes. snake skin, turtle shell, myrrh. Mm. Okay. Thyme, willow, pear, fig, fir, and date. These would okay. be mixed together in varying concentrations and then delivered using honey, water, beer, wine, or bitumen, which is kind of like a tar. And it would be a poultice. So this is just one tablet. And when wow. you look at this, the few ingredients named on this tablet could be combined, depending on what doses you used of the ingredients, could be combined into things like laxatives, antiseptics, astringents, filters, and salves. You get a lot of treatments from a very small ingredient list. That's so cool. And it makes a lot of sense that probably a lot of this was discovered kind of experientially 
And then they'd want to pass that down, you know, through generations to, you know, so that they could keep the knowledge alive. But that's so wonderful. And I think we've talked a lot about this, Josh, on our podcast, but there is quite a bit of, you know, keeping a person alive that you can do with some fairly simple ingredients if you know what you're doing. It's not perfect and it's not going to take care of the horribly critical things or the rare things or the weird things. But, you know, the the normal everyday you're dehydrated and you have diarrhea or you're cut and bleeding and you don't want it to get infected, you could address a lot of these with stuff that you have around you if you experimented enough to figure out what works and what doesn't work. Th- this was a lot of years and years and years of accumulated knowledge must have been like this trial and error. Now there were, there were no hospitals as such because both Asu and Ashipu operated out of temples and treated patients at the temple, but also apparently would make house calls. Uh, so oh. a lot of patients would be treated in their homes and the oldest I guess if you want to call it medical school, would have been the city of Isin, which was the center, the cult center for the goddess Gula. Um, So it it has been extrapolated from the data. We don't have any written records as such, but that since it was the center of this goddess of healing, that it would be a training center for physicians who would then go to temples of Gula in various other cities around the valley. Cool. Okay, gotcha. So this was a, um, I guess, like a highlight industry, or it was a, a center of learning for this particular discipline. So this is where you'd go for healing training versus if you wanted to do something different, like building or law, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, so you'd go to, you know, right, You'd if you wanted to learn healing, you'd go to the city with the temple dedicated to healing. If you wanted to learn you know, necromancy, you'd go to the center for the temple dedicated <laughs> to the underworld. Um, gotcha. the, Sorry, I know you're being serious, but like, still, okay, got it. The doctor was always associated with the temple complex. Interestingly, both women and men could be doctor priests, uh, although okay. there aren't a lot of records of women in general. It is known that, the, that doctors shave their heads to be easily identifiable. So there's some speculation that maybe fewer female doctors because women didn't want to shave their heads. Who knows? Got, okay. yeah. <laughs> yeah. But how would you know that they were priests? Well, priests often walk around chanting hymns, apparently. Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> so I've been told. <laughs> I yeah. mean, I don't okay. really see a lot of it nowadays, but well, you know, presumably... <laughs> Well, I mean, if if you and I want to take a trip over to the nearest Franciscan monastery, I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure we can see, you know, kind of the the. Sp- hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot; we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Spiritual descendants of these types of priests and monks, but yeah, okay. Well, here's here's one of the hymns that they would kind of chant as they carried, as they walked around the city making their rounds they would have the all the tools of their trade and Mm -hmm. this is i am a physician i can heal i carry around healing herbs i drive away disease i gird Mm -hmm. myself with the leather bag containing health giving incantations i carry texts that bring recovery i give cures to mankind my pure dressing alleviates the wound my soft bandage relieves the sick Oh, uh, so, I thought for sure you were going to sing that, but that's that the poetry of it is quite beautiful, but it's kind of like um, that they're they're kind of heralding or town crying who I am type of thing. So meaning that if you needed to find him, there's this oh, boom, I hear that hymn. Yeah, right just look there. for the singing bald guy walking around the city. <laughs> It's cool to know that singing bald guys go back like four or five thousand years. <laughs> Nobody Don't has be a monopoly in the barbershop quartets. <laughs> um. <laughs> I would love to know that modern day barbershop quartets are the spiritual descendants <laughs> of ancient Mesopotamian healers. <laughs> You oh, have a staff infection. <laughs> so, oh uh, no. <laughs> interestingly, how would they be paid? Well, fee for service. So, you know, same medical insurance bullshit we have these days. <laughs> sure, sure. Okay. And just like today, fee for service is on a sliding scale depending on your social status. Oh, okay. Okay. So, like what can you afford type of thing okay well not quite uh, a doctor who presided over the birth of a noble would be paid more than one who presided over the birth of a commoner a doctor might be paid in gold for mixing a prescription for a prince but doing the exact same prescription for a tanner or leather worker might just be a bowl of soup or a clay cup however okay. It doesn't look like they refused to treat the poor, and prescriptions were given with the same ingredients, regardless of social status, but you would be okay. charged based on what you could afford. I, I, I know that we haven't talked about this, or you may not have a good answer right now, but there probably then was some kind of um, uh, like a code of ethics that we have in today's medical world that where we think about, you know, you know we shall not turn them away, you know, if they're ill. Um, and I, I think even a lot of ethics boards in hospitals have that you you will not be turned away, you know, regardless of, of cost. And um, I know, unfortunately, here in the United States, we kind of deteriorate to, well, but we'll charge you later. <laughs> but this seems a lot more equitable that like, oh, you know, if you can afford to get me a meal or, you know, a nice cup or something like that, I'll take it. And here's your poultice. Good God, y'all. <laughs> uh. Yeah. 
exactly. Antiseptics were made, as we said, from like alcohol, honey, myrrh was the delivery vessel along with herbs. Surgery was surprisingly advanced for the time. But here's the thing. One of the other items that comes up in a lot of the tablets. In the treatment of all wounds, there are three critical steps. Washing, applying a plaster, and binding the wound. They recognized washing a wound with clean water and making sure the doctor's hands were clean prevented infection and hastened healing. Regardless <laughs> of infectious theory, they're like, you know, we're working for a goddess. We must clean. We must purify. We must practice hand hygiene. <laughs> yeah, that's, Wash this is your really damn good. hands. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Super important. I think it's so cool that this was, it was a very intuitive thing in a place where you didn't have a extremely clean antiseptic type of environment around you. So you may be able to go into a hut, for instance, but more than likely, you're not able to completely, you know, we can't cover up the patient in um, a super clean environment away from the elements that the way that we can do in today's day and age. So that recognition that your area and everything that you're doing, you know, for the patient right then and there needs to be prepped. And it's very interesting, Josh, you know, we made technological advancements. And of course, a lot of this knowledge was lost for a period of time to the point where we thought this was like old thinking that like, this is just hogwash. Right. And, uh, it took, you know, Dr. Samuelweiss, you know, much later on to say that, like, hey, guys, you got to wash your hands. And, you know, for a while he was thought insane, you know, to, well, we to also make that talk about we also yeah. talked about because this was written in cuneiform, a language that nobody knows and people sure. weren't going crazy for it the way they were for ancient Egypt. Right. A lot of this knowledge lost is a tough word to say, but. We don't know the kind of influence this had on the development of Western medical tradition because right, it, people yeah, yeah, weren't we, looking at it until, it. you know, this, none of this came up until the 1900s. Sure, sure. <laughs> so that means that, you know, the civilization fell and other writing forms and civilizations were rising, but they would lose more and more knowledge of how to interpret we don't know maybe maybe the greeks and egyptians took inspiration and you know either misinterpreted or did their own versions of what the mesopotamians were doing maybe they had nothing to do with it and the mesopotamians kind of came to this on their own and then it disappeared until the 1900 we have no clue because the written records didn't really exist or the ones that do exist weren't able to be translated right yeah (laughs) For example, there's even there's a pregnancy test mentioned in these texts where certain herbs were worn by a woman in her underwear, which would absorb vaginal secretions and change color if she was pregnant. Whoa, dude. Holy crap. They had like a. What what the like EPT, but like an herbal yeah. EPT. <laughs> yeah, just that stuff so these cool. leaves stuff these leaves into your garments and yeah. uh They'll change color. They had pee on a stick before we had pee on a stick. (laughs) That's awesome. I mean, 
I would love, I, I hope that there are folks in museums and paleontologists and everything who are really looking through this stuff, because I'd love to find out that if it really did interact with something like, um, you know, human chorionic gonadotropin, which we use as the marker right now. And, you know, if there is a plant that actually changes color when it comes into contact with that particular hormone, dude, that would be so, so cool. And now... I don't want to give him like a crazy amount of credit. We of course don't know Josh, like how accurate these tests were, like if they actually worked, <laughs> but it makes a ton of sense in terms of what we do nowadays in terms of like peeing on a stick and the HCG comes out of the urine. Regardless of the accuracy, the fact that they even describe something that we can recognize in a modern context. Sure. Sure. Is pretty yeah. dang impressive. <laughs> It's pretty awesome. Yeah, this is why so many of us, especially those of us who love history, get so, so heartbroken uh, when sources of knowledge such as these kind of get lost or or anything. It still happens today in the modern world, huh, Josh? It it does. So yeah. So now let's now let's get to uh, liability and medical malpractice. No, come on. (laughs) We were having fun. (laughs) Really, they had like. Lawsuits? Well, the doctors weren't held. See, here's the thing. You're talking about we don't know how well it worked. Doctors weren't held liable if these procedures didn't work because the gods were the direct cause as well as the curative agent of disease. So a physician could only be held accountable for what he or she did or did not do in administering a procedure. So if a prescription was followed precisely as written, even if the patient was not cured, the doctor had acted properly. Uh, this reminds me of a modern day phrase that we use. If it's not written down, it didn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> Documentation. Oh, my Documentation. God. Documentation. Oh, I, I was genuinely hoping, Josh, that like it was that was a modern day sadness that our our ancestors us didn't have to go through that horrible thing of like did you write it down oh man i can't read that (laughs) they still were going through that oh my gosh as long as they did what had been written down and established and was the medical algorithm to follow as long as they did all the things you you win you lose you die not my problem. I've done everything I'm supposed to do. I sure. am safe. If you didn't die, that's because your sin had not properly been taken care of by the God. Right. However, that was only responsible for your field, infectious disease, or oh. presumably inflammatory conditions, things like that. <laughs> Surgeons were a whole sure. other story. I will say that you know, we're in a modern era right now, yeah, where we have a lot of clean things that we didn't have before, water, food standards. Um, we're, thank, you know, thankful, very thankful we have vaccination against a lot of the more prevalent diseases, even if you're in a developing country. And, you know, we're in an era of antibiotics. So, I mean, this is most of human history, right, is that we would die by infection, you know, all the way from youth all the way through. And so it makes a ton of sense that the 
kind of the the lion's share of medicine that would be practiced. Uh, they wouldn't call it as infection, but they would be infections. So fighting against them, preventing them, and recognizing them and categorizing them. So it that makes a lot of sense to me, is that the doctoring was kind of centered around infection very early on. Now, this is also when the Code of Hammurabi, the first, Ooh, you know, yeah book for lawyers came out it indicated that doctors would be held responsible for surgical errors and failures the laws oh, only mention liability in connection with the use of a knife so this was the worry of like causing frank injury with the with the tool another common medical trope of today is that surgeons like to really preserve their mortality ratio numbers certain surgeons um. have been you know even in the modern day, have been accused of saying they will not operate if they do not think the patient has a chance of surviving because they don't want it to affect their numbers. Right. And this is also why here we got this, you know, we're in this modern era, just like I said, antibiotics. And this is one of the big barriers that we have from my side is that when we're trying to do stewardship, meaning that we're trying to be very judicious about how much antibiotics we use pre-op, post-op, more often than not, our surgical colleagues will request or, you know, err on the side of being much, much more cautious and overusing the antibiotic rather than underusing and risk infection. And that's because as of the Code of Hammurabi's time, both the mm -hmm. successful surgeon's compensation and the failed surgeon's liability were determined by the status of his patient. Let me give oh, you an geez. example. Oh my God. Oh, poor thing. Okay. All right. If a surgeon operated and saved the life of a person of high status, mm -hmm. the patient had to pay 10 shekels of silver. Got if, it. He saved, if he saved the life of a slave, only received two shekels. Okay. Right? Okay. Well, that's fine. Mm -hmm. You know, again, there's that sliding pay scale. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. If that slave died from receiving surgical treatment, the surgeon okay. had to pay to replace the slave. Okay. Oh, that's, gotcha. Because that's we're, fine. We're in an era uh, where human property, et cetera. Okay, got it, got it. Okay. If a person of high status died as, as a result of surgery, oh, the surgeon no. would have their hand cut off. Okay. And... So that's... lawsuits didn't really figure into the... They were very Whoa. fast with settling this. <laughs> okay. But this is, this is why what you're telling me that as a, for instance, so, you know, ancient Mesopotamian surgeon Josh, nice to meet you, our king over here right now, and, you know, he's at death's doorstep. And I think the only thing that will save him is a great incantation from the goddess Gula and for you to take your holy knife and excise out the demon. Uh, how about you come on over because we can play you, you know, whatever, 50 shackles. If so, you, uh, Ashipu, if you so Ashipu Santosh does yes. all the chants, yes, gives okay, the herbs, okay. right? and the king isn't getting better but you know what you did all the things that your ashipu priestly things prescribed so hey yes. god's angry what can you okay. do nothing got it got it and so right? now i call yes uh-huh okay so now i'm going to call i want to make sure i get this right so this would you would you would be asu josh 
I would be Asu Josh. So now I'm looking right. empirically. Now, right. maybe I'm also giving, you know, now we could be working together. We've first given our treatments, our herbs. We've set our yes. spells. We've laid amulets over the person. We've taken okay. them to the temple. We've cleaned, washed, and bound, and they're still not getting better. Now, Asu Josh comes in and I say, hey, you know what? All this demon area seems to be coming from an erupting source of evil on your leg, which gotcha. we might okay, say so is an abscess or something. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, so we found a cellulitis abscess. That's, yeah, okay. Our, our prayers, our chants, our herbs haven't worked. Why? Because antibiotics really have a hard time getting to abscess pockets. Not uncommon. Sure, sure. Okay. So we take up, so I take up the knife. And yes. I excise the demon. All right. And, okay. And we see all the evil drain out of you. Wonderful. Mm. King dies. Okay. Oh. Now, you are not liable because you did all your priestly things. But I screwed up the cut. I excised okay. the demon in such a way that I drained out the soul along with the evil spirits. Goodbye, Asu Josh's hands. Oh, no. <laughs> Cause this is like, cause I, I went extreme. Like I was like the king. So like, this could be, yeah, th this could be like really, really like a big like, execution, like pay for, pay for the king's life with your life. Kind of scary stuff. I'd say extremely unfair, <laughs> extremely unfair. Um, because I, both of us were doing the best that we knew how to do with the tools that we had. Yeah, and, and that's kind of all I can really give you from this, because here's part of the problem. One, none of us speak ancient Mesopotamian. Now, while <laughs> a lot of the descriptions of herbs and things are yeah. are pretty easy to understand in terms of we recognize willow, that's our aspirin, we recognize thyme and some of these others. Mm -hmm. Honey, honey is a, a, a topical antiseptic. And they can recognize conditions like strokes, seizures, fevers, worms and flukes, sexually transmitted disease, skin lesions. So we recognize certain things. Okay. But part of the problem with diagnosing is we don't understand the cuneiform. So maybe, you know, apple monkey carburetor means this is a seizure <laughs> disorder or maybe gotcha. it means something else entirely. Sure, uh, sure. These ancient okay. tablets are in pieces, so we have incomplete fragments. There's multiple tablets, and they're dispersed around the world, even though a lot of them are in the British Museum. Maybe, you know, imagine if you were trying to read your Harrison's Guide of Medicine, and like yeah. chapters one through three are located in Greece, and chapter four <laughs> is in Papua New Guinea, and chapter five is in Scotland, and chapter six is at the bottom of the ocean. <laughs> well, I'm guessing... And they're, all, and they're all written in emojis that you've never heard of. Yeah. <laughs> I'm guessing, I'm guessing that... Well, the, the emojis that we've never heard of, a little bit aside, but at least with the kind of the power that we have right now, I'm guessing a lot of stuff's being digitized so that people can share things, you know, across countries and such. There is not nearly as much information on this as I would like there to be. It is very sure. difficult to get into without being an active in the field anthropologist. So sure. I'm afraid this is where our way back machine begins running out of gas. 
Okay. Okay. Fair. We've gathered all of the beautiful information that we can. And, uh, you know, I, I think learn quite a bit actually about our friends in Mesopotamia and what they could do, what they believed. Um, I think it's really cool to see what they were capable of because, you know, we think about like 3000 years ago, you know, what, what could you learn? What could you do? And all this kind of a thing, but just to know and understand that they had a discipline where they were learning, teaching each other and forwarding today, what we would call the, the knowledge base or the, the, the science of medicine I think that's so, so cool. And I genuinely hope that our wonderful colleagues in paleontology, et cetera, crack these codes and that even the shards and everything that we have, that we gain as much knowledge as we can from those. Because uh, just to know what our, our ancestors did, you know, medicine and everything else, I hope we have a ton to learn from them. That's so cool lost knowledge. But I, I would love to just for the sake of the learning know how they differed from what we do today. So there would be one of the most common spells and sort of, you know how you walk into a room, Santosh, and you introduce yourself. Hello, I'm Dr. So-and-so. I'm this yeah. specialty and here's what I'll be doing. <laughs> and you kind of establish goals of care. Yes. Right yes. from the, the beginning. The, right. The very basic introduction. And nowadays we're taught to, you know, come in, sit down, give them your card, all rituals. Yeah. So the, this in Mesopotamia was a spell or an incantation. Ooh. And okay. it was the most common one. It's called the Marduk Ia incantation. It okay. is, you know, it's unique in that it's been documented use of almost 3000 years. It was recited in exorcistic healing rituals. So that would be your field, the Ashipu, exorcistic okay. healing rituals. The formal structure of this spell is studied from the point of view of the neuroscience of the doctor-patient relationship. Just this spell would serve kind of a placebo effect. Okay. Begin okay. Putting someone. So the basic nature of this incantation is that the patient is suffering from the influence of some demon or force. The junior god, Marduk sees the suffering and either mm -hmm. himself goes or sends a messenger to the senior god, Enki, later called Ia. Mm -hmm. And okay. these incantations would be divine meditation, magic connecting the spiritual to the physical world to allow the priest doctor to channel the healing ability into the patient and begin uh, helping them. Very, very cool. Now, we are learning more and more. I think, and kind of being in agreement with what they had in Mesopotamia, that the time spent with us, so when we're able to, and, and this really is, you know, one of those modern struggles that we have. If we as doctors are given the time and the patience to be able to sit with our patients, get to know them, talk to them, that I, I agree, a lot of the, like, healing, you know, does start with the patient being comfortable, open, and uh, like honest with us. So it, there, there has to be like that initial uh, introduction has to really, really be set because Josh, like we always say, right? History, the history really, really matters. And they're not going to tell us the truth if they're not comfortable. 
Um, but I'm sure you and I have both had where part of this is, you know, physical and we have to cure it, antibiotic, surgery, whatever it is. And then part of it's going to be mental. Part of it's going to be, hey, I feel good and optimistic that I'm going to get better. And that matters that we have a little bit of a relationship, doctor and patient. So that's so cool. It was like ritualized. That's awesome. So I'm going to end this episode with a very roughly translated version of a Marduk Ia incantation for a headache. Oh, for a headache. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Okay, hold on. Yeah, hold on, hold this on. is I'm, this I'm, is kind. Hold on, I'm laying back. Okay, okay, okay. I'm ready. All right. The headache demon is directed toward the man. The headache mm. demon is distressing the neck muscles. Mm. There is no small opening that can ensnare the gala demon. No oh. binding that can be tied on the headache demon. It is the young lad who is seized by the demon. It is the young lad whose diseased neck twitches. Oh. Marduk sent someone to his father Enki, saying, Say to his father Enki, the headache demon is directed towards the man, is distressing the muscles. Enki answered his son, My son, what do you know? What do you not know? Why, Marduk answered, what can save him? Enki answers, When you have brought me clean, purifying water, and you have poured the fat of a cow, and then let on rub the clean liquid on the head, let one rub him with that oil. Mm. Marduk's son of Enki, may the headache demon split the riverbank on the patient's cranium. May the demon oh. break up like a pot. It is the incantation, Ningarima. It is the spell of Eridu, shrine of Enki. Oh my that god. Is problem, diagnosis, ritual solution. That's I'm gonna so start awesome. chanting at my patients. <laughs> <laughs> I know you are. I know you oh, are because I have the COVID demon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and the Fauci said, "Bring forth. How do I heal the COVID? <laughs> well, you must pour the fat of the horse. <laughs> fat of the horse." <laughs> he said, "And you shall wear the mask over the nose and the mouth." <laughs> absolutely so you can find no, no, actually not, I, I don't i don't want to get us caught up in like idolizing the fauci i think he's a great guy but he's not a guy. No, no, no 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 yeah no 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 um dude i'm gonna start chanting at my patients i i'm gonna take your idea absolutely <laughs> so there's actually a lot of these healing incantations and things all throughout the internet that are very easy to find, uh, much easier than finding actual descriptions of treatments. You can see pictures of the cuneiform tablets, all that. Uh, let's hop on in the Wayback Machine and head all the way back to modern day 2022. Aww. All right. All right. Okay. And we'll we'll keep a few incantations handy with us for the future but ancient mesopotamian medicine and modern day medicine not as dissimilar as you may think very cool so yeah very cool i love it i thought you might enjoy a little jaunt to somewhere other than egypt for a change santosh <laughs> i i will say uh, i know we we uh laugh a lot about you know your 
obsession with the uh, number one Egypt and number two the Victorian era in England. But I will say that uh, as many years as we've been doing this and everything, you do have a beautiful base of knowledge across many, many uh, ancient and, and near ancient cultures. So this this is actually not a unique little jaunt. I love it every time we go out. It's so much fun. What can I say? I'm a history buff, just bulging with Mesopotamia, well, jacked on ancient knowledge, a straight up Renaissance unit. <laughs> you get all that out of your system there? Are you good? Most, most of it. oh my god there's more that i'm gonna uh, listeners get to go home right now so that's yeah (laughs) go to enki pour the cow of oil anyway (laughs) that's it for this week as always, yes. we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes, along with yeah. links, uh, along with links for further reading, uh, such as this incantation. <laughs> this show is produced by me with a lot of help from Dr. Santosh and friends. Hopefully, we'll be able to start bringing back just the tips uh, by the end of this season, yeah. as well as prepare for the upcoming comic book medicine episode. Yeah, and, I uh, wish we could actually recommend a just the tip to like Mesopotamia, but I, I, I guess it's not like the the safest place for folks to travel right now. Partially because it doesn't exist anymore, but you no, know no, no, the area, like modern Persia, the, yeah, modern, <laughs> modern day modern day, Persia, yeah. Iran, Iraq, yeah. uh, Afghanistan, yeah. all of those. Um, mm-hmm. But until next time, as always, wash your hands, get your shot. Practice proper hygiene. Listen to your doctors. Find a country that's open. Look up something you want to see. And once you've done all those things, hey, happy travels. Bye, everybody. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 